Part of growing up from childhood into youth and adulthood is about getting stronger, isn't it? Getting bigger and stronger. I remember when I was a little kid, I was actually a quite skinny little boy, around about nine and ten, and I just longed to get bigger, to put on some muscle and to grow up and play the big boys' games like rugby and that sort of thing. Uh, And you need to grow up. And earlier this year, our rector, Charlie Screen, encouraged us here at All Souls to focus our thinking this year on that topic of growth, growing up spiritually, growing in our faith, growing strong roots into the Word of God like trees grow through having strong roots in the soil. And part of that Christian growth, of course, is endurance, just as it is physically. You can keep going for longer. Perseverance, keep going day by day in the Christian life even in the midst of the struggles and the testings. Now, this book uh, that we've been reading from, Hebrews, was written to people who, it seems, were in danger of giving up, falling back, just opting out, losing heart, uh, because the Christian life was so tough and, and their faith was really challenging. They were facing opposition and suffering and persecution. And this whole letter of Hebrews is actually, he calls it at the very end in chapter 13, a word of encouragement, he said. He said, I've written rather briefly, just a word of encouragement, all 13 chapters of it, telling them to keep going, to go on having faith, to go on being faithful. And in the midst of it, of course, there are also some warnings about the dangers of the opposite. So how does he go about that encouragement to us? Well, basically by pointing to Jesus. And he does it right from the very start. Uh, There back in chapter 1, he exalts Christ as the Son of God from all eternity. In chapter 2, he moves on to how uh, the Son of God became fully human in the man Jesus. And then he focuses on his suffering and death that he endured for us. Uh, And then he moves on to this verse, uh, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest, because he was faithful to the one who promised and appointed him. Jesus was faithful. He trusted his father. He obeyed his father right to the very end of his life and indeed in his death. And so Jesus becomes the model for us in the rest of the letter to the Hebrews, a model of faith and faithfulness, of endurance and suffering. And so Hebrews repeatedly urges us, his readers, to follow his example. Here are just three texts that we could very quickly read together. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, because we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we keep our original conviction firmly to the very end. That's in chapter 3. Here's another one. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess. Uh, And one more. You need to persevere, he says in chapter 10, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Because we don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now, he could have gone on uh, to straight on to chapter uh, 39, uh, from from chapter 10, verse 39, to chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. If you look what he says there at verse 39, 
we need to have faith and are saved. And you've got to skip right on to chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He could have gone from chapter 10 to chapter 12, but in between, we're in what we are doing these few weeks here at church, chapter 11. Why? Well, because he's writing mainly to Jewish believers, and they knew their scriptures. They knew what we now call the Old Testament. So he gives them in chapter 11, where we've been spending some weeks here, here at All Souls, giving them this great gallery of characters back in the Old Testament. And what's he doing? Well, first of all, he's just giving them some examples. He says, here's what faith in practice looks like. This is how faith can be exercised. This is uh, what faith can sometimes accomplish. This is also what faith sometimes costs. And so he says, imitate these leaders in their faith. Imitate their faith, not necessarily their actions. It's not that we are supposed to do everything that they did in Hebrews 11, but we're to imitate their faith. But then secondly also, he's still pointing to Jesus. He hasn't stopped doing that just because he's now using the Old Testament. And that's clear from the way this whole section climaxes, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks uh, in chapter 12, where he says, therefore, our memory verse, you've got all those witnesses, so now fix your eyes on Jesus. Because, you see, even though he's listed those characters in the Old Testament, these Jewish readers would have known that although they were great men and women and they were great examples of faith, they were all human beings. They were all flawed in one way or another. Many of them failed quite badly, even though they had faith. But Jesus, you see, in a sense, is the perfect believer. And in some ways, those Old Testament characters prefigured the faith and faithfulness of Jesus himself. And we can see that in two of the ways that faith exercises itself all the way through chapter 12, and especially in the uh, little section we're going to be looking at in a moment, that faith means trusting God in spite of what cannot be seen, because it's still future, and trusting in God in spite of what must be endured, which is hitting you right now. And those two things, trusting God in spite of what can't be seen yet, trusting God in what has to be endured now, you can see that running all the way through chapter 11, and of course it leads right up to what he says in chapter 12, our memory verse of this evening, fixing our eyes on Jesus who, for the joy set before him, it was still future, he couldn't yet see it, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, trusting in God. So says Hebrews then, don't lose heart. And we'll come to that passage in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, with Richard East in a few weeks' time. So we come then to our passage for this evening, which is read to us, the second one, faith in the God who raises the dead. Chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, where Hebrews takes us to the biggest test that Abraham faced in his whole life. And it seems to have come towards the end of his life, or at least much later in life, because he was about 100 years old by this time. Uh, and his son was already probably a young teenager. And so the story that he's referring to here is, as it says in the screen, the one that Daniel read to us a few moments, Genesis chapter 22. So let's just go there and kind of relive that story just for a few moments and, and think about it. Okay, so here it is. God says to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord, take your son. Uh, well, which one, Lord? You know, I've actually got two 
Well, your only son. Uh, well, yes, I suppose I only have one now by Sarah, because the other son by Hagar was Ishmael, and he'd left already. Well, actually been thrown out a few years earlier. Your only son whom you love. Yeah, Lord, I do. I love him dearly. Thank you so much. He's a wonderful son. Isaac. Yeah, that's the one. Yes. So take your son, Isaac. Yes, Lord, where? Well, to uh, a place in Moriah. Okay. And, and then what? Sacrifice him. What? Did you feel anything of the shock in that story? If you'd never heard it before, you would be. I mean, what's happening here just to us and to the readers, it just sounds appalling. It's horrendous from any point of view. I mean, what on earth is this to do with God, the God of the Bible? How can God possibly ask anybody, any parent, to sacrifice a child? Well, let me just try to put something in perspective here which will help us at least to get it into a right biblical perspective. Five points. First of all, God had no intention of going through with this sacrifice. We know that because we've read the story. And God knew it, of course, because this was a test, but Abraham didn't. But God had no intention. On the contrary, secondly, God strictly prohibited this sickening practice of the sacrifice of children in Israel's law, prohibited them from ever doing such a thing. But thirdly, it was a feature of the surrounding nations and their religions. We know that in extreme circumstances, you might sacrifice a child in order to beg your God, whoever the God was, to do something for you or to make a very serious vow to the God. It wasn't unheard of at all in that ancient world. And fourthly, we know that it was what the Canaanites did, the people that Abraham was living among. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, when God is warning the Israelites not to go that way, he says this, this is Deuteronomy, be careful not to ask, how do these nations, these other nations, serve their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in fire as sacrifices to their gods. So the Canaanites did it. And is God saying to Abraham, do you love and worship and serve me, your God, as much as these Canaanites around you do? For their gods, would you go that far for me? But the fifth point is worth making, that God put Abraham to the same test that God himself would endure when God proved the extent of his love and faithfulness for us, when he a couple of thousand years later, would give his only begotten son, whom he loves, Jesus, as the sacrifice for our sins. And as God watched that father and son, Abraham and Isaac, walking towards that mountain, he must have been thinking of the day when he and his son would walk together to Calvary, and there'd be no substitute for Jesus on that day. But what about Abraham? What about Abraham? What was he thinking? Well, our text in Genesis 2 really doesn't tell us anything about what he was thinking, but it doesn't take much imagination at all, does it? I mean, some of us here at All Souls Church know what it is to lose a child. 
through illness or accident. And as a parent and a grandparent, I can't imagine anything more painful, more traumatic than that. So Abraham, why are you doing this? Well, because God told me to. In our day, if anybody said that they'd heard a voice from God telling them to kill their child, they'd be arrested, they'd be sectioned for some psychotic illness. But Abraham wasn't sick. Abraham wasn't just hearing voices. In fact, Abraham had had many conversations with God before this over the past 30 years or more. Abraham knew the voice of the living God And this was the living God who was testing his faith to the utmost at this point. But you see, that actually makes it worse. Because this was the same living God who had made to Abraham incredible promises repeatedly. Abraham, you and your wife Sarah, you're going to have a son. Yeah, tick, Isaac, he's already been born. And through Isaac... Your descendants will become a great nation. That's God's promise. And more than that, through that great nation, your descendants, Abraham, through Isaac, there's going to be blessing for all nations on the earth. That was God's promise. That was God's global mission, we might say. That was God's great plan for the whole human race. All nations on earth blessed through the children of Abraham. And it all depends on Isaac. So sacrifice him? I mean, how could God keep his promise to the world if Abraham slays Isaac, who was the key to that promise ever being fulfilled? And again, the text just doesn't tell us. In fact, you almost get the feeling that Abraham felt, well, that's God's problem, not mine. I mean, you see, God has made this promise to me, and I trust him to keep it. And God has given this command to me, and I trust him enough to obey it. And it's up to God to put these together somehow. And that's what the Apostle Paul calls the obedience of faith. In fact, it's what Hebrews has already said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, where we read that by faith Abraham obeyed. Or as James puts it, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. But let's come back now to our main text Uh, here in Hebrews, the one that's actually drawing from that story in Genesis 22, where we read these words. Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. Abraham reasoned that. In other words, we're not talking here about blind faith, about some sort of irrational religious mania or something. No, there's a very strong word. Abraham thought it through and came to a logical conclusion. That's what the word means. He thinks something like, look, God has promised to bless all nations on earth through my descendants, through Isaac. Therefore, Isaac needs to grow up to be old enough to have children of his own. 
but God has asked me to sacrifice him. Nevertheless, God always keeps his promises. Therefore, God will have to raise him from the dead. (laughs) The only logical conclusion to the clash between the command and the promise. And you might imagine him thinking, well, God actually gave us Isaac birth and life from me and Sarah, and both of us were as good as dead to start with. So if God has the power to do that, God can raise him from the dead. So Hebrews tells us, Hebrews tells us, that's what Abraham reasoned. But you want to say to the writer, how do you know? Where did you get that from in our story? And I think the only clue to it, and many commentators have said this, that it's there in chapter 22, verse 5, where Abraham when they reached close to the mountain, said to his servants who had gone with them, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy will go over there and we will worship, yeah, and we know what's going to happen, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Abraham says, even after the sacrifice, father and son will return. And Hebrews takes that as Abraham's reasoning that God could raise the dead. Well, okay. But it's one thing to believe in your head and in theory that God has the power to raise the dead. I mean, actually, other Old Testament believers did believe that. It was part of Israel's faith. Here's what Hannah sings in, in, in Hannah's wonderful song, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. The Lord brings down to the grave and raises up. So God has the power to raise the dead. Sure. But it's one thing to believe that in theory or in theology. It's something else altogether to take a knife to your own son. Hoping, believing that God will actually do that for him, for you. That takes incredible faith, don't you think? Courage, agony of heart, anxiety, faith all mixed together, willing to pay that cost of obedience right to the very end. And Abraham took it right to that very end, almost within a breath. And that's where we wrote that wonderful piece of storytelling where we read there uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, that as he was about to do that, reaching out his hand with a knife, the Lord calls to him, don't lay a hand on your, on your son, on the boy, because now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham obeyed God. And there we have it, that God says at that moment, a climactic, this is actually, in a sense, the conclusion of all God's promises to Abraham at this point in his life. It brings the climax to the whole story of Abraham when God says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You trusted me, you obeyed me. Faith and obedience together. And you see, Abraham obeyed God. Why? Because he believed in God's promises for the future and because he trusted in the God who has the power to raise the dead, the Lord of life and death. 
So what does this speak to us? How do we apply this story, these words of Hebrews in any sense to ourselves? Well, first of all, we need to ask, don't we, how does, two ways I want us to think of, first of all, how does Abraham's obedience of faith, as Paul calls it, speak to us? And my answer to that question is that it reminds us that the test of faith is the cost of obedience. Because sometimes... I expect there's not anybody in this room who will disagree with this. Sometimes we struggle with what God asks of us. And even when we obey God in faith and in obedience, the cost may go on for quite a long time, even for Abraham. Because you may not have noticed this, but there are actually hints in the story that follows that the sheer trauma of what happened at that mountain. For Isaac particularly, one imagines, and the post-traumatic stress must have been incredible, what nearly happened seems to have caused a rift within the family of Abraham from that point on. At least that's a possible interpretation, the fact that from this point on we find Abraham and Sarah and Isaac all in different places. They all seem to have split up. Abraham goes to Beersheba, we read in chapter 22, verse 19, Sarah is now living at Hebron in chapter 23, verse 2. And when she dies, Abraham has to go from where he was to mourn for her and to bury her. And Isaac, meanwhile, is down at Be'er Laharoi, which is in the deep south of the country. And so it seems that this event, though God rescued Isaac and brought him back in that sense from the dead, led to something pretty costly in the life of Abraham from then on. And again, this is not foreign to some of us, isn't it? Some of you here at All Souls, we know. You know how your faith in Christ and your obedience to the call of God can lead to some very sad splits and strife within your close family. And that can be very tough. And the test of your faith has been the cost of your obedience. But then also... Abraham was asked to give up Isaac, to surrender him to God. And so it does raise for us the question, what might God be asking you to give up for him? And that might be something that you know, on the one hand, is not pleasing to God. Something that your conscience is telling you is simply wrong, sinful, harmful, but you love it could be a relationship that's, you know, not pleasing to God or in line with his word. could be a habit of some kind, possibly a habit of thought, possibly a, a spirit of bitterness or of jealousy or of self-pity or of guilt, even though you know your sins are forgiven by God, but you can't quite give them up. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, you know in your heart of hearts that God is saying, and saying right now to you, give that to me. You don't need to hold on to that any longer. Give it up. I carried it on the cross for you. So let it go. Give it up for God. And do that. Do it trusting in the God who keeps his promises. That's what Abraham did, you see. He obeyed God because he believed in God's future, 
that there was a future for him and his family and for Isaac, no matter what he did, if he would obey God. And that's what God promises too. When you give up something that you know is wrong, you trust the promises of God for his future, for your future. It's there for you in God. So make Abraham's faith your own. Make Abraham's obedience your own. Trust God and follow Jesus. But it may be, of course, that like Abraham, God is calling you to surrender to him something that's not sinful at all. There's nothing sinful about Isaac. Something perfectly good, something that in itself is precious, a gift from God, like Isaac was. And God says sometimes, will you forego that for me? Will you give up to me something that I've given to you, but will you do this for me so that you can do that for me? And sometimes in life, God calls us to do that. To give up something which may be perfectly okay and right and nothing sinful about it in its own way, but it's not the way God wants us to walk. Maybe, possibly, opportunities for advancement in a job, and a career, prospects, promotion. It may be something that could bring you great personal satisfaction or even great wealth. It may be home comforts in order to serve God in some other place that would be a lot less comfortable and possibly downright dangerous. And some of our mission partners know what that means. It may be sometimes foregoing what could be financial security and the steady income and pension and all of those kind of things, just simply doing it for God, trusting that God is going to provide. God is there. God's not going to let you die. One of the problems with so much Christianity in the West is that it's become so comfortable, isn't it? And people come to become Christians, and uh, they're very cheerful about it. They're very enthusiastic about their Christian faith. And it goes along with a kind of assumption, you know, God loves me so much. God, God won't ask me to do anything too hard. No? Perhaps we need to talk to some believers in other countries who know the cost of obedience to God and faith in Christ. Costs them, sometimes their lives. So that's the first point I wanted to make, that the test of your faith is the cost of your obedience. And only you and God know what that means for you tonight. But secondly, of our two points, that's the first one. The second is, how does Abraham's prefiguring of Christ speak to us? And this I think we can deal with more briefly, but it does lead us to our climax. And that is, of course, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the guarantee of God's promised future. You see, in our story in Genesis 22, Father Abraham received his son back from the dead, figuratively speaking, as the text says, because he believed in the promises of God and trusted in God's power to raise the dead. And in similar manner, God the Father received his son back from the dead, really and truly from the dead, by raising him to life on the third day. And see, here's the thing. Jesus went to his death. Jesus went to the cross believing that, like Abraham believed. 
Jesus believed not only that God had the power to raise the dead, all his Jewish fellow men and women believed that, but Jesus went to the cross believing that God would indeed raise him from the dead. So much so that he had predicted that three times to his disciples in the Gospels before uh, his crucifixion. Three times he told them that he was going to suffer and die in Jerusalem and on the third day rise again from the dead. And he did, because God kept his promise. So you see, Jesus died in agony. He died all that horrendous, shameful death of crucifixion. But Jesus did not die in despair, because he trusted in the promises of God, his Father. God kept his promise for Abraham, for Christ, And for you. So the question is, are you living now your life in the light of that promise of God, that future that God has for you, that can be filled with hope and joy, all that God has for you in his future, even in the midst of the struggles and the sufferings and the agony of something like what God tested Abraham with. For as Paul says in Romans 8, that wonderful chapter in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit that lives in you. So, as we close, trust God in spite of what can't be seen and trust God in spite of what must be endured like Abraham, like Christ. Because, you see, if, as Paul closes that chapter, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because I am convinced, says Paul. Are you convinced of this? Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? So what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. Twice in that chapter, Genesis 22, Abraham says to God, here I am. Perhaps that's what you need to say to God this evening. Here I am. Help me, Lord, to surrender to you whatever it is you're asking. Help me to trust you and to obey you. In spite of all I cannot see and in spite of all that I seem to endure, be with me. Help us, Lord, to make that decision and to make it trusting in you and knowing that your presence is with us 
Through the Lord Jesus Christ, in life and death, we trust in Jesus. Amen.